Hello folks, welcome to this episode of Launching Rebel for Life podcast actually and today I will be chatting and yarning with Liz, Liz Downs uh, who is a dear friend and campaigner for the Rainforest Information Centre and we've become really close over the last few years after having met through Extinction Rebellion events and we're co-producing some research and knowledge and ideas together Uh, and we meet now will be our first day meeting at an Extinction Rebellion organized regenerative hub so this podcast is going to be about our evolution in this space how we work together to bring about greater knowledge and understanding around what it genuinely means to perhaps transition in a just way and address the climate and ecological crisis for the benefit of the planet and us all. Testing, testing, one, two, three. Hi, Liz. Did you want to introduce yourself? (laughs) Um, Yeah, so we came together um, in the last couple of years doing uh, climate action work in um, Tasmania, Lutruwita. Lutruwita being um, the country that we're working on, living in. and coming together around, you know, mutual passions for, um, for, for bringing justice into the climate movement and um, coming from a mutual background in um, community work and international um, development spaces where uh, also from a background in my case and environmental activism with forests so um we yes um we kind of just gonna see how things go and experiment with um recording and documenting a bit of our process i guess so our process is pretty um when it comes to how we're i guess approaching the research that we're doing and approaching our broader sort of values and principles around bringing justice into the climate movement, I think it's fairly fluid. Um, so there's that aspect and that involves yarning and catching up and chatting and um, talking about various different issues. And then there's the work we're doing with Aid Watch, which is to um, write a series of chapters around um, ver- minerals that are being sought after for the clean energy transition um, and just delving into some of those implications and what that might mean for a just transition. And then I'm also doing a PhD, so there's that aspect um, as well that I will, you know, um, be evolving my research in collaboration with Liz and the work we're doing here at Site Co-Creation. So yeah, we're just experimenting with um, 
documenting and yarning with the hope that it might be interesting to folks about our process and what we learn along the way. Um, and something we kind of wanted to chat about today is Liz, Liz's work with the Rainforest Information Centre. So they've had um, a really exciting result in the courts in Ecuador. And um, yeah, I wanted to ask Liz a few questions about it and we can yarn about it. And yeah, it's got to do with rights of nature. And um, yeah, we hope you're interested and hope you like, like joining in. So yeah, um, tell me a little bit about the, the judgment and how, how it went down and, and why do you think it's significant? Okay, so yeah, a bit of a background. So um, I am a campaigner for Rainforest um, Information Centre, which is an Australian um, grassroots environmental kind of group, networky kind of thing, um, an organisation really. But um, yeah, we we're very small, very grassroots. But it was started about forty years ago by an amazing um, man called John Seed, who. Uh, was part of Australia's very first rainforest protection actions um, involving looking onto trees, <laughs> um, which was one, and so it led to the Franklin protests and uh, Franklin and the Dane Tree and all the other um, great environmental actions around Australia that through the 80s and 90s and uh, the last couple of decades as well. Anyway, uh, one of the projects that the RIC, as we call ourselves, has been um, involved in for many decades. <laughs> Um, has been um, a reserve in Ecuador, which is um, officially the most biodiverse country in the world. Um, and it's a very, it's not only the most biodiverse country, it's a very interesting country on lots of different levels. So uh, this particular reserve called Los Cerdos um, is up in the Andes. It's got hundreds of endangered species, about 270 endangered species have been logged so far. Um, in studies, um, attracted lots of scientists. It's got communities living um, in the region who are basically rural communities. They are people who are um, largely descended from um, Inca and pre-Inca populations as well, so a very um, indigenous um, uh, land-based communities who grow incredible food because <laughs> it's the tropics. Um, and so, Basically, um, what happened a couple of few years ago was that Ecuador um, uh, became un uh, a third of the country became under the concession to mining companies. Um, two million hectares of those cover protected forests, and two million. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's two million cool. hectares. That's quite a lot of <laughs> amazing, you know, forest and indigenous lands as well. So you can sort of see where this campaign's got. Um, two fronts, it's got like environmental prong and it's got a justice prong and this is what, what we're talking about today is how, um, anyway, so the Los Cedros is, is, um, went to court last year at the Ecuadorian High Court or the Constitutional Court for the rights of nature which is another incredible thing that Ecuador is well known for around the world. It has um, enshrined rights for nature in its constitution um, under four different articles which protect uh, biodiversity, give rights to um, uh, living systems and water systems um, and these rights afford certain obligations in le legislation to the state 
However, <laughs> the state is so keen to have uh, mining in the country that it's basically tried to push aside these constitutional laws to get there to force through um, this massive land sell to international mining companies. Um, anyway, it's a very long story, but where this relates to climate is that um, the mineral that is that most of the companies are after um, is copper. Yeah, what's <laughs> copper used for? Yes, yeah, so so this is I say as if I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so this is this is um, you, you'll start to realise that we don't work in a very linear way. So anyway, we're going to go all over, wander all over the place here. Um, <laughs> so anyway, um, it's organic, and we're here at the regenerative hub. Yeah, so we're here at the regenerative. This is a regenerative topic, and so we're understanding that a lot of interlinked issues. This is basically now coming to the story of how my involvement in the Ecuador campaign and in saving this forest called Los Cerros from copper mining and in the rights of nature movement is also intersecting with Claire's research, which we'll tell you about in a moment, on, um, on how the renewable energy transition around the world is fueling a huge global land grab for what are known as critical minerals. Um, and these minerals include copper, is one of these, possibly the main one. It's uh, needed for everything. It, no, for it's, electric cars require copper. They, they require four times more copper than an average vehicle. Um, wind farms require an enormous amount of copper. Electrification generally and decarbonisation requires a huge amount of copper for um, for, <laughs> for cables and wiring and, and you know and all the other things so basically the copper price has gone up and up and up over the past couple of years in, um, with, with the various the cop 26 and the paris agreement and joe biden and all the, all the other things that are going on with climate which everyone thinks yay we're good you know, the world is coming towards some kind of well actually no because this is also going to cause a massive problem um it's going to cause a lot of injustice because these minerals have to be mined somewhere. Extractivism, the word, comes from extractivismo in Spanish. Yeah. It's kind of a harsh word. We had a friend say to us recently, didn't we, that extractivism is kind of, oh, I don't like that word. It's kind of harsh. It's kind of ugly. Yeah. And but we were kind of like, well, it's an ugly thing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And it's a bit like the idea of degrowth, right, which we will probably talk in this podcast, but mm. uh, people get a bit um, reactive around that word. But, um, but that's sort of why you use that word because it elicits a reaction that gets you to think about what this process is and what it what it might mean for us you know if we're triggered by anything that isn't growth why is that Mm -hmm. um why do we believe so strongly in this idea of growth or yeah or why do we feel concerned about the feeling of extractivism and without recognizing that it is something that happens every day in our lives actually we are a part of this system of extractivisms in their various forms and and down the track I think of this podcast we might explore the different types that have been talked about in scholarship and from activists but yeah from what I'm learning doing my PhD and using extractivism as a lens is that it's very much a term that um, came from Latin America and from collaborations between indigenous folk, peasant-based um, farming um, groups starting to talk about this with scholars and, and really started to think about what was going on 
in in Latin America in terms of this intensive resource extraction that was a particular type of foreign companies coming in extracting with really intensive practices that involved a lot of uh, destruction of the nature and um, uh, waste and then exporting most of it out so these countries becoming sort of beholden to this boom bust kind of nature of mining and not getting a lot of benefits out of it and really feeling I think well I can't speak for their feelings or folks on the ground's feelings but um, I imagine it it's an experience of, of invasion almost particularly when there's been a lack of consent around um, projects so coming up to that I was wondering if you could speak a bit about this judgment that came out um, yesterday Ecuador yeah yeah, yeah. because well part again um, maybe just a little bit more context for this so um, you know um, about um, 30% of the mining companies that are currently trying to explore the copper in Ecuador are Australian companies Um, and one of those Australian companies that's impacting on um, the Los Cedros Reserve that we've been trying to protect but also the surrounding areas and the the front lines that we've been working with and the the rural, the people, the farmers, the indigenous people of that area Um, is is BHP, we've got um, a couple of other companies, Solgold, Lena Reinhardt's in there as well with so you know well-known companies that are already um, you know uh, very big in Australia and the world um, they are operating across the continent here particularly in um, obviously in indigenous lands and first nations lands because in West Australia and South Australia are massive mining states so when we started going into this and delving into the Ecuador situation and, and working on the campaign to try and support the front lines and all the fundraising, we quickly realised that, well, the first thing we had to do was find the link to Australia because we, we needed to get some media here in Australia, we needed to get people interested. And one of the things was, well, it's like a massive Australian mining company footprint and they're yeah. mining for copper, which um, is, a, is a renewable energy resource that the climate movement is really pushing you know and, and our Australian greens and all the rest of it anyway so we started doing this campaign and, and it became really intense um, we, you know this particular forest court case that was one yesterday which completely blew our minds but it's basically saying that um, not just on the part of the biodiversity so the rights of the biodiversity to exist persist and thrive of that area of all those species of um, you know, different big species like pumas, jaguars, um, uh, spider monkeys, uh, and spectacled bears, you know, mm. but also all the other different species. Yeah. So they have a right to exist and not to be brushed aside for, you know, some greedy company to come in and get mine the copper yeah. <laughs> to sell to an electric car <laughs> made dealers in China, you know, or, or you know, not just China, but it's, it's, it is, you know, the geopolitics of it tends to really just squash out local environments it's a concept known as um, sacrifice zones yes yeah so we don't want the forest to become a sacrifice zone for that but also the communities around um, the Ecuadorian constitutional court ruled that um, communities have the right to clean and safe water in a clean environment yeah 
and also that the companies have to do a different kind of consultation in future to um in not because you know the problem is you allow companies to do consultation and they just want to get the communities to but basically it's blackmail we want to blackmail the communities coerce the communities into it we don't have any of those kinds of protections in the constitution and the constitution is the overarching sort of law that trumps every other law if you like so to get these kinds of um, incredible progressive um, legislative concept you know um, ideas are into the constitution is pretty amazing and, and there's a, probably a, um, a whole podcast on that bon movement and how it came to be that um, rights of nature emerged but um yeah perhaps if you want to chat about that the where those kinds of um legislative frameworks came from like where did they come up with the idea of rights of nature and um is that that's a big question yeah well it's a big question but i think um you know just tying it back into what we've been talking about i really think that the important concept and the takeaway concept here is um that these are legislations that have come out of indigenous worldviews like the andes um and what that means is it's it's basically the the part of what's known as mentioned it before the post-extractivism concept or post-extractivism movement where um you know countries and peoples that have traditionally been um, oppressed by our very colonial industrial capitalist um invasive yeah, Western European, whatever you want to call it, Global North, you know, the culture that, that it's, it's basically been causing <laughs> the um, massive climate and ecological crisis that we have, climate, a climate, social and ecological crisis, because yeah. the, we, we, what, one thing we really want to be very clear on is that um, it's interesting how the climate movement almost is it's, it's the climate movement and the word yeah. climate's in there but what happened to ecological and social yes because the crisis is three-pronged and the same thing has caused all you know our, our economic system um, which is based in colonial extractivism um, it's a very old mindset it's a mindset that's so entrenched that most people don't know it if we're privileged yeah. we don't know that we're participating in that mindset most of yeah. the time and it's really hard to say to people that oh well actually you're, you're privileged and they go oh i'm privileged how <laughs> dare you say that I, I care about the environment and then you go yeah. ah the environment well that's another thing yeah. <laughs> um you and know yeah that idea like what i think you're about to allude to the the environment being yeah. something separate from us yeah. this idea of separation and um and classifying and objectifying things that came out of like a pro- probably hyper scientific enlightenment period um that still remains in a lot of sciences um that requires this kind of separation of concepts and really sort of boxing them in without recognizing the relationality between things mm-hmm. and so i think you find that that's being replicated with the climate movement by f- fixating purely on climate um and failing to recognize the interrelatedness means that you get this kind of reductionist carbon fixation um around 
just reducing emissions in this kind of calculated, like accounting kind of way, um, which I wouldn't say the climate movement, you know, in terms of the, the like radical transformative aspects of the climate movement really intentionally did this. And I think there's also been a role that's been played by energy experts and various other white collar people who've been shaping this whole narrative um, have played a role in making it more kind of capitalist and colonialist in a way. Um, but there is something there about separating issues and fixating on them that seems to replicate the problem that caused the thing in the first place. If that yeah. makes any sense. Yep, it's exactly. And and so you know, as now well, when we're looking at alternatives to that, what we're seeing and what I mean, what so excited me when I was in Latin America, when I've been in Ecuador, and really just going, actually, there's this whole alternative movement. Now, of course, we also have, <laughs> you know, I mean, in Australia, I'll, I'll get onto this in a minute because I'll. I'll to get on to how it applies to so-called Australia here but you know one thing that's really you know this, this dialogue that's coming to academia that's coming to even up into the political and um, legal systems of countries like Ecuador um, is that is, is coming from a different place it's coming from a place that nature is not just here to be exploited by humans it's not just here to provide resources it has its own rights nature is a living organic being um, you know, a, a multi-dimensional being. It's it's a, a being with which we are totally interrelated and embedded. Um, some of the um, biggest informants of the deep ecology movement have also come out of Latin America. Um, really? Biocentrism, biocentrism, or biocentrism, or ecocentrism, or you know, all of these these ways of saying that we are we are the forest, depending it's depending on him or You know, we're not <laughs> themselves. We're not. Um, defending the forest and also we're not the forest isn't here to provide wood for us the forest yeah. isn't here to you know provide carbon credits for us even it's a whole lot of different dialogues and so what we're trying to say is you know coming out of Ecuador with you know something like you know nature being defended legally in a court of law yeah. um, it's saying you know it's saying to the climate movement who is basically if you know if you look at most well-meaning people here and you told them well, you know, yeah, uh, you know, we, we've had conversations, and they've run something like this. Well, yeah, I mean, we need to, yes, decarbonisation is important for bringing the global, you know, temperature down, but um, the mining is going to be happening in the Congo, and it's going to be happening in Ecuador, which are the most, you know, incredibly politically conflicted spots where there's been these histories of slavery, slavery and child labour in mining where mining is going to wipe out species directly. Yeah. It's not just going to be a side effect of the mining. The mining yeah. in Ecuador has already wiped out species. Yeah. And we're in a sixth mass extinction. So what we're trying to say to people is we need to bring the ecological back into the equation and we need Absolutely. to bring the social back into the equation and make it a three-pronged yeah. effort movement, not just a carbon reduction movement, yeah. because then you're just going to be going, you know, we're not going to be stopping the, the destructive no. force. We're just going to be... It's already... You know, our research is already showing that it's... It's destructive. And yeah. I think the thing is, I think... Um, and I think we'll do a series of different, like, specific topics and mm. 
go a bit deeper deeper into those and entanglements but because there's a lot to take in I think with this but um, okay the idea that uh, decarbonization can occur within the current sort of market-based global system that we're in is um, denying so many flaws existing within the capitalist system and the or the neoliberal system however you want to understand this like rampantly growing economic political you know storm we're sort of in i know i shouldn't use the word storm actually but um you know the last 30 years has been um the most emissions that have been released right since we've known or since um the companies have known about the climate crisis we've pumped out more emissions than any other period in history and so to to really have faith in this market and that it will transform is is it's um kind of i can see it's wish it's wishful thinking i want to say delusional but i think people really want to believe that things can get better through Um, these technologies but we have to remember these technologies were developed at the grassroots level and um, were meant for kind of community decentralized hubs of um, reducing consumption and 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 planning around um, use of energy in a more kind of ecologically sound way and um, to use technologies to roll out in this with by the same actors as the fossil fuel companies, right? They're the ones, you know, joining the financing the, um, the so-called renewable energy companies, and um, the money backing this is really dirty, kind of exploitative colonial old money too. Um, that's backing these companies in the rollout of this energy infrastructure to think that that will actually generate low carbon communities is pretty it's a it's it's a it's a myth i think and so it's not just we're not just sort of here to say um this is a concern for small communities that are you know that face the projects this is a concern for all of us this should concern us if we care about the climate if we care about ecology if we care about justice if we care about our future survival (laughs) you know (laughs) that this um this market rollout of renewables is um laced with misinformation and so there's that as well and um i'm really relying on some really amazing scholars to be able to say that so i want to shout out to um alexander dunlap who does a lot of work in this space and others in the political ecology space and um obviously the folks on the ground who witness and are in constant sort of struggles against this system so yeah, sorry, that was my little interlude there around um, that. But yeah, back to your point, um, this sort of system is enabling the 
extraction of um, more land and resources from the global south, which is, I think, what what where I come from in terms of justice is what, where I'm really um, thriving for some change, actually. And uh, I think we're going to wrap it up there. And so thanks for tuning in for our first episode. And um, yeah, thanks, Liz. I love these yarns that we've had previously and it's going to be cool to document them and yeah keep the brain and the embodied experience of yarning going into the future